Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth. And somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. So uh, Game of Thrones Season 7 has been a little uh, controversial, to say the least, amongst the the Westerosian faithful, uh, a lot of people that I uh, know that follow the, the show as closely as I do, wouldn't you say? Yeah, we're a little bit divided. Yeah, we are like uh, two parts of a kingdom that cannot get along and are at, at fighting each other locked in a death duel. Yeah, when there's a, a greater enemy to the north yeah. threatening to come get us all. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I thought it'd be interesting. You know, a lot of people are talking about season seven as a breakdown of the logic of the universe. I've been seeing that all over. Yeah. Um, kind of threw away the theme of travel happening and being dangerous and where many of the most interesting and unforeseen events occurred is now not really part of the show a lot of, of the uh, standard deus ex machina saving the hero at the last minute going on that's ruffled a lot of feathers. Yeah. Um, I, well, I agree that that's present in season seven. Um, oh, hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 30, by oh, the way. Yeah. yeah. Hi. We're going to be talking Game of Thrones. Um, I think there is a deeper, more pervasive problem in Game of Thrones, not just they kind of rush travel, which is a problem, one yeah. worth discussing, and not that they just have deus ex machinas and have become uh, another YouTube channel we really like. Wisecrack said it feels a lot like uh, the you know eagles coming at the end to save the day. Right. As a Lord of the Rings reference, if you've seen any Lord of the Rings movies, when the moments are most dire, the heroes look pretty screwed. In come the eagles to save them. Yeah. And there was a lot of that feeling here in Game of Thrones season seven, but I thought it'd be interesting to look at character construction. Yeah, and I, I agree with you that the breakdown in the logic has been a really frustrating point that a lot of us who enjoy the show have been, uh, you know, feeling feeling a little let down by. And that breakdown in logic, uh, of course, taking the form of the breakneck speed of travel and the sort of 
you know, easiness with which our characters get out of situations that normally would have been really difficult. I agree that that, um, you know, is, is a huge issue and that's been something that really bothers me. But I think the deeper problem that we are going to deconstruct tonight is that since the, the show diverged from, uh, the source material and, uh, you know, started kind of getting its own legs away from George R. R. Martin, we have seen some, some real falling apart of the sort of beautiful and delicate and, uh, and deep character development that we saw over the first five seasons. Um, in, in the interest of serving uh, the plot, which I find to be a much weaker, not that the plot of Game of Thrones is at all weak, but I think it's a weaker uh, method by which to tell your story. Right. And So we should oh, just ahead. really quickly say, if you are not caught up, please don't listen any further. Pause. This is going to be heavy, heavy spoilage Spoiler for Game of Thrones. For books and shows. Yes. And in particular, we're going to dive deep into one of my favorite characters. We're going to do a case Probably study. Probably my least favorite character. Yeah, we're going to do a case study on Arya Stark. And we're going to hopefully by the end prove that Arya Stark's character development through into season seven is symptomatic of a larger issue of abandoning character development as a major theme of the show. Yep. So we've done character studies with Game of Thrones before. I think we'll do a a brief kind of overall how we got here. Where I would like to focus, and I'm I'm willing to be flexible if you have other ideas, is Arya in particular from seasons five to seven. Yeah, I think that's the best uh, angle to take. Which is almost... Um, completely uh, overshadowed any source material in the books because where the books left off, uh, Arya is still blind um, and in the, uh, the, the house of uh, the many faced God, the house of black and house white. Black and white. Yeah. All right. So we'll do a real quick where Arya is from. She is the uh, second daughter of Lord Eddard Stark and Catelyn Stark, who are Lords of the North um, Lords of Winterfell, pardon me, Wardens of the North. And where Arya's sort of story takes place is she's kind of the outcast Tom girl. She's really more interested in learning about archery and swordplay than she is about doing all of the traditional lady things like embroidery and uh, wooing princes and uh, other handsome lords. She kind of wants to be a fighter. Um, throughout the show, we see her, especially in the beginning, trying to walk a different path getting herself into loads of trouble, getting herself into loads of messes and kind of, she's always found her way to work herself out of them. Obviously things come to a head when her father gets executed and she essentially has to go on the run to survive in there. Aria um, has become a survivor more so than anything else in the early seasons. Right. Um, she's learned how to live on her own. She's learned how to make peace and she's learned what I would call uh, moral flexibility. Mm, she yeah. starts very rigid morally in the beginning of the show. She has a clear sense of what she believes is right. She follows it at all costs. Anyone who tells anything that deviates from the truth is ignoble. She does her duty to her prayers, but she w- believes in the glory and victory of combat. She's a baby Ned Stark. Yes, She's very much her father's daughter. Yeah. More so than any of the other children when we first meet them. Right. Yeah. And, Jon Snow obviously evolves into a very uh, Ned Stark-like 
uh, and, hero, but and so does Rob Stark. Yeah, you know, but uh, Arya is the one that like most like uh, embodies the warrior ethos of the nobility of the North. Yeah, and and talking really quickly on her relationships with the rest of the Starks, uh, it's really interesting to pit Sansa, you know, against those other characters. Obviously, she has a close uh, relationship with John but has always had a kind of diametrically opposed relationship to her sister Sansa, uh, which in some ways mirrors any sister relationship I have ever encountered. I know my sure. sister and I have some rivalry and competition that we worked through as young, uh, young ones, but um, their, their rivalry goes a little bit deeper, I think. Um, and part of that is that they are just opposite personalities, uh, where Arya is the more tomboyish, uh, you know, combat fighter, um, you know, not that interested in finery, but interested in getting her hands dirty. Sansa is that, uh, at least she begins as that stereotypical lady. She wants to marry a prince and she wants to wear fine jewels and clothes. And that uh, tension creates quite a bit of conflict between those two uh, that, that we see persist. Absolutely. Um, totally. And then um, as as Arya's early story in the early seasons uh, she's trying to get smuggled up to the wall as a way to get her out of the South mm-hmm. where the North represents this sort of uh, the safe haven. If she can finally get back to the North, she would be safe. All hell breaks loose. She ends up a cupbearer to Tywin Lannister at one point. She's in the custody of the Hound, um, which, I mean, we could really just talk Arya and the Hound in those early episodes oh, and, man. and what both of those characters represent um, you know, one character who's completely cynical and, but takes this other character under his wing and she in turn, who hates him and wants him to die, ends up not killing him when she has the opportunity to. Right. She ends up learning through her relationship with the Hound moral flexibility. It's not as simple as she liked it to, to be. It's not as easy as I have enemies and I have allies. And I can check them off a list. And the hound was an enemy, but the hound also protected her. The hound actively teaches this lesson to her when they are taken in by a family to feed them. And the family uh, offers the hound uh, employment. It says, hey, listen, these are dark times. You're obviously a fighting man. You can help. If you do an honest day's work, we'll give you an honest day's pay. And the hound's like, yeah, that sounds good. And then he just takes all of their gold and leaves. Right. And Arya is just like, what are you kidding me? And he's just like, listen, once winter comes, these people are dead anyway. Yeah. You know, we, we might as well just do this. And there's moral ambiguity there that Arya starts to learn is necessary when pitted against survival. And I think that moral universe is, uh, is sort of a microcosm of the moral landscape that we're playing in in all of, all of Westeros, all of Essos, all of Game of Thrones as a universe. Um, you know, this, this story, which has, it owes so much to, uh, Tolkien and owes so much to Lord of the Rings. Uh, it sets itself apart. It becomes this unique and, and kind of amazing thing for us to witness because we're seeing characters who can't be qualified as all good or all bad. Things aren't simple. They aren't black and white. They are, uh, part of this ever shifting sort of moral wave that, you know, makes us completely change our mind about characters from one instant to the next and really illuminates different sides of sort of the human condition. Sure. And we hate the Hound early in. Yeah. And through his exploits with Arya, we learn to really like the Hound. Right. 
and kind of feel sympathy. He is now at a point where he is a uncomfortable hero, you know, in the show in the respect that we don't actively root against him. We actually root for him. Yeah. We realize that there's someone far worse in his family that he has always stood against in his brother. And that the hound has actually done a good job keeping evil at bay, both in his house and, uh, in the houses that he has served. Right. Um, anyway, that would be great for the Hound episode. Back to Arya. <laughs> so there's one primary motivation underneath everything. As Arya learns moral ambiguity in her exploits through Westeros with the Hound, and that is vengeance. Yep. At the end of the day, she and her family have been wronged, horribly wronged. And she's the type of person that believes it is her duty to do something about that. And her this manifests in her nightly list reading, this ritual where she leads off or reads off to herself the names of people that she wants to kill before she goes to sleep. And this leads her to a character named Yagan Hagar, who is a weapon incarnate. He is a faceless man. When we see him first in the show, he actually says that he is part of the uh, priesthood of Rolor, which is a bit of a a, a little bit of an inconsistency. The yeah. show you got to go deep cut to really pick it up. Yeah. But he originally says that. But we're still we're new we're new in the show. He doesn't say he's part of the many faced god. But anyway, uh, he gives her a car and says Valhar Magalas, which means all, all men, men must, must die. die, and says if you're ever in Bravos, you go to the House of Black and White, show him this coin, and say these words Valhar Magalas, and you know you will always be okay. Well we start seeing that Arya is now getting linked to ritual. She's getting linked to uh, religion. She's getting linked to prayer, but never for a spiritual cause. No. It's always in service of bloody vengeance. So this brings her at the brink of it. I don't know where to go. All hope is lost. She hops onto a ship to Bravos and goes to the house of the many-faced God. And that's where we start around season five. Yeah. Now, the house of the, the, the many-faced God, the house of black and white, what do we think right out of the gate? Black and white, right? Uh, what, yeah. When you well, combine both those colors, what do you get? Gray. Gray. When you walk inside that house of black and white, the whole place is literally gray. Right. We see pictures and statues of every deity uh, represented there in, in, that is worshipped um, in Westeros and Essos. And there, the... What the House of Black and White tries to do is purge Arya of herself. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's something I think we we harp on a lot in the Midnight Myth, but um, here again we're going to see a, a little bit of influence from Eastern philosophy, um, you know, Buddhist principles of uh, removing the self so as to remove suffering, um, stripping away the parts of you that are egotistical, that, you know, are are clinging to worldly possessions and to the, the, um, you know, the mortal coil. And so by stripping those away, you can reach a deeper truth and eliminate pain, eliminate suffering in your life. And I think that's, that's huge at the core of, uh, of the many faced God and the faceless assassins. Absolutely. So a lot of things to, to say about them. And I totally stand in agreement with what you just said. Um, the faceless God, they literally wear the faces of their victims. Yeah. And when they wear them, they don't just wear the face. They become that other person because they strip themselves down to an empty vessel. Wearing the face allows them to don the voice, the height, right. the weight, 
of this other person. They can literally shape change by yeah. putting on the faces of their victims. It's the idea of you go back to the source and you can change the material. It's like almost changing yourself, not to science up a thing that's magic, but it's like you can change yourself at a subatomic level by, you know, again, by stripping away those parts of you that you're clinging to. And so right out of the gate, Arya is fucking terrible at this. Right. She's terrible at serving. Everything in, I don't want to say things have come easy for her, but she's always been a natural at the things she's been good at. You know what she's great at serving? Oysters, clams, and cockles. <laughs> Oysters, clams, and cockles. Oysters, clams, and cockles. So, so what are the faceless men? Essentially, they are mystical assassins in service of death. Yeah. They are a death cult, but they represent a major philosophical break from every other individual or character in the show and yeah. the other religions in the respect that everyone else pursues their own interests and their own gains. This is true of Melisandre, of the Red Priestess. This is true of the High Septim in the, yeah. in the, the religion of the Seven. This is true of Cersei as much as it's true of John. Yeah. Right? So even the good guys and the bad guys are locked in this mortal coil. And here we have a character whose primary motivation is vengeance. And I want to get the power of the faceless men to enact revenge saying, you don't get that power until you give up your revenge. Right. And that was a two season character arc that was phenomenal. I mean, it's really interesting to think of of the most selfish motivation coming up with the most selfless means by which to achieve that objective. And that's a really interesting sort of unstoppable force meeting an immovable object. Really cool tension there. So yes, I agree. That was a really interesting thing to introduce to that plot. And, in, and in two seasons, we have her and culminating in the end of season five, where she has the mission, the person that she's supposed to assassinate, but then she sees Sir Marin, who she knows is on her list, part of one of those high-ranking Lancaster Lannister um, knights. Yeah. And so what does she do? She chooses vengeance over service of the many-faced god. She chooses to be Arya instead of being no one, and she decides to assassinate Lord Marin, and she has to pay a price for that, which is she loses her eyesight. Right. And that is where we leave off at Arya in, in, in season five. Vengeance over spiritualism is a choice that she is going to make time and time again. And that was the first time, and she always pays a horrible consequence for it. So this manifests in season six again. When, when it first happened in season six, it took me a long time to get beyond behind it because at first I thought, they're kind of doing Arya's arc twice. But I realized that at the end of season six, she's tasked to assassinate an actress who is portraying Cersei Lannister, one of her truest and uh, most like like antagonist of antagonists, number one on the list once Joffrey's gone yeah, is Cersei. Absolutely. And playing Cersei Lannister in a perverted history with a show within a show, getting like super fucking meta, and Arya likes her because she's too good at acting. And this is where she doesn't choose vengeance over spiritualism. She chooses materialism over spiritualism. Yeah. She chooses to be to to say, I won't walk the path of the faceless man. I can't really give up myself. I can't 
even bring myself to do this. I can't even symbolically kill Cersei if at the heart of it, I feel like there's actually a good person there. Yeah. And which there was, this doesn't save that character. That character still dies, right? Cause the waif kills her. And in that Arya gets locked into a mortal battle with her and the waif, which she ultimately wins, which frees her from her obligation of the faceless men. And she returns finally to Westeros in a long, long two seasons of her and Bravos learning how to be a master assassin fan favorite Arya finally has the means, the motive, the opportunity to become the thing that we all thought she would eventually be, which is a weapon of vengeance. She has become this new character. She's no longer really the Arya Stark we knew, and she's not the faceless man that she wanted or at one point was pursuing to be, but she is now this vicious, ruthless killer. And we see it at the end of season six when she kills Walder Frey. But before she actually kills him, she feeds him his children. Very Shakespearean, super Titus Andronicus-y up in there. Right on. If you don't know that play Titus Andronicus, that's what he does to his enemies. Yeah, pretty much. Before killing them, he feeds them their children. Yeah. And at the end of season six, I left there thinking to myself, okay, so... Arya is now the Frankenstein monster. Yeah. The one we were rooting for, the one that we really like, the one that finally knows what they are and what they need to be and has gone through all the trials and tribulations, has passed the gulf, and is now the most ruthless killer in all of Westeros. And to me, I'm like, he who seeks vengeance digs two graves. The tragic hero always dies. And I'm like, Look what the world has done to Arya. And to me, I thought, there's no way this has a happy ending or happy story. Oh, heavens no. And up until this point, I feel like Arya has been handled with such care and and has done, uh, the, the writers have done such justice to this idea. And now they've created the ultimate weapon in Westeros, free from the ideology and the higher spiritual calling that the faceless men have. It's like, oh, fuck, man, this is going to be sick. This is going to be insane. Yeah, we've got a superhero. And so now let's talk Let's talk season seven. And my friends, this is where, and this is just one example, I would say, of season seven showing that the writing of the show fell apart at a very core root level. Yeah. So we see Ari, what's the first thing she does? Kills all the phrase. First episode of season seven. All the phrase are dead. And you're like, fuck. She, yeah. here she just it is. wiped out an entire house. Easily. Without thought, without pity, without hesitation. But we also see she made sure that Walder Frey's young child wife uh, did not drink the poison because she realized she was innocent. So we still see some semblance of some clear moral ambiguity. I can kill all of these Freys, but this one Frey is innocent, so I will save this one Frey. Right. Then we see her next sitting with Lannister soldiers. And, and Ed Sheeran. And who's that? That singer-songwriter that everybody was oh. up in a tizzy about. Oh, yeah. Who cares? Ed, yeah. He was fine. The, the point of that scene was Arya is talking to her enemies, realizing that these common soldiers actually are just poor, dumb, common soldiers and aren't any more her enemies than anyone else. She could kill them all. Right. But she doesn't because they were nice, they were kind, you know, and she realizes they may not survive the winter, but she uncynically 
lets these enemies go when she literally, when she's sitting there, she can kill anyone at any moment. Yeah. Decides not to. She then in that episode hears that John Sansa and Bran are all alive. I don't think Bran yet. She might not have known Bran, but John and Sansa have retaken Winterfell. Right. And, and she, she's like, ain't no party like a Stark club party. Booyah. <laughs> and uh, she stands literally at the crossroads on the King's Road. One way leads to Winterfell. One way leads to King's, King's Landing. Landing. King's Landing being the path of vengeance. Winterfell being the path home. Never has her motivation really truly been to go home. You know, it's always been to get vengeance. It's been the glue. It's been why she can't actually join the faceless men and follow a higher, more spiritual calling. She is embedded in the game. She can't separate from it because at the core, she can't let this go, this vengeance. Right. right? She has to be Arya Stark, and Arya Stark has to be the Frankenstein that's out there getting blood for the avenged or vengeance for the, the Stark. Sorry, I'm being very dramatic. What does she do? She t- decides to go home. And like right out the gate, I saw this. I'm like, holy shit. Yeah. Stark club party. Yeah. Like, yeah this is really fucking cool. They were just really exciting. Like they're doing a whole different direction. Something I didn't see coming. You know, this is like vintage, awesome game of Thrones. But then she gets to Winterfell and becomes a goblin. It was really strange. Um, you know, Arya back at Winterfell is a really strange thing to watch. And I've been struggling with it, uh, you know, ever since I've been struggling with it this whole season. Just like what, why is this so off to me? And sometimes I wonder if it's the writing or, you know, I think that Maisie Williams is a pretty good actress, but like, I don't necessarily know if she's like super capable of, of doing the sort of cold detached thing that I guess the directors are having her do. But, um, but yeah, this, this kind of tension of uh, Arya, who has chosen to be Arya, who has chosen not to be no one, who has thrown out the sort of philosophy and ideology behind being a faceless assassin in, uh, you know, in an effort to achieve her worldly and selfish goals with the tools that they gave her, suddenly turns up at Winterfell being like, I'm not Arya Stark. I'm a faceless assassin and being this very removed from the, from the world that she's in kind of creature. And it's a really strange thing to, for me to wrap my head around. Right. Yeah. And I get that, that character finally getting back to a place she thought was gone forever to her would be odd and difficult as it has been for all the Stark children and, and Jon Snow. Yeah that have come back to it. But I get the, the strong sense. So Arya serves Sansa's arc in season seven. Right. Instead of having her own. Exactly. And the character Sansa needed an obstacle to overcome because God forbid ruling the North wasn't a big enough obstacle for the fucking character. Yeah. Or God forbid Sansa gets to actually show what she's made of and not be just, you know, a, a tool for other people to manipulate for an entire season. And so we see, you know, Arya following Littlefinger, gathering evidence against Sansa, mistrusting her, threatening her. We get 
I think two or three Arya evil monologues that threatens Sansa's life. So weird. And and so it you know, Arya becomes this unstoppable force of vengeance, and the writers obviously didn't want to pursue that. For whatever reason, she needed to be back in Winterfell for this story to take place the way that they wanted it to. But they had this space of her in Winterfell thinking, what's Arya going to do there? She has to do something. So, oh, well, when she was a little girl, she and her sister didn't get along. So it makes sense that she would hate her sister still and would be this roadblock undercutting her sister everywhere that she went in what felt more like a daytime soap opera turn yeah. than Game of Thrones level ruthlessness. She's also kind of like psycho horror movie child. Like dead eyed yeah. and, and, and like, and you think yeah. she, she might jump out at any moment and just stab you, but mm-hmm. more likely she's just going to be kind of standing in the wings and, and just there to do jump scares. Um, yeah. It just feels like if it, it feels like there's, there's so much missing from what I've been watching this entire and, time. And here's what's missing. Fundamentally, we saw Arya stop grappling with the moral decisions that we had to see her grapple with in other seasons, which were the primary things that got her character from point A to point B, not within the plot per se, but within that character's development as a person. Once Arya stopped grappling with moral decisions, all she's left with is great power and how best to use that great power well, that's a major theme of the show when done with nuance. Yeah. We have the Boltons with great power. How do they deal with it? Cersei with great power. Jon Snow with great power. Now, with Arya's great power is a different type because it's the power of, of thievery. It's the power that lurks of evil. Yeah, she's a rogue. You know, so we have her with this master assassin power. How best to grapple with it instead of fleshing that out in the, I was meant to go out and kill all my enemies now that I'm surrounded by friends, I'm purposeless. That would have been a very interesting arc. Yeah. Her dealing with the fact that she now has no purpose or place and that home now feels more alien to her uh, than she ever thought, right? Like there could have been a thousand different directions to go that could have been compelling, that could have kept the moral conflict at Aria, vengeance versus spiritualism, home versus uh, the King's Landing, you know, that, that once you free the character from that moral conflict and then they're just there, then they just become a wedge in another character's story. And you're right. like, what the fuck did you do with one of my favorite characters, Game of Thrones? Yeah. And it's also, it, it's that conflict between self and not self, self and unself with Arya. Uh, you know, I feel like we watched a couple of seasons of her actively making the choice to go back to Arya, right? So we watch her try really hard to unself herself and decide that that's... That's a really great stance. Yeah, yeah sorry. And decide that that's not right. That's not you. Uh, that's not me. Um, she she chooses at the end of season six to be Arya Stark. And then in season seven, we watch her take, you know, make the choice to go back to home and being Arya Stark, she gets there and she's not Arya Stark. And we have to work really hard at making her Arya Stark again, which we almost get in that final uh, moment with her and Sansa, like reflecting on father. Right. Right. Major, major, major spoilers 
just to throw this up there again. She ends up being the pawn in Sansa's game to kill Littlefinger. Right. right? You took one of the few heroes of the show and you relegated them to henchmen. Yeah. And once you put them in the henchmen box, you just, you, you left me sitting there with mouth agape being like, you know, I really want Sansa to come into her own. I really wanted Sansa to out Littlefinger, Littlefinger. You know, I love the idea of Sansa being as ruthless as Littlefinger, but with the honor of a Stark being like the perfect weapon in Game of Thrones. Like, I love that that's what happened to Sansa. But did you have to destroy Arya to make that happen? I also, and I don't want to digress too much, I love the idea of Sansa out, out Littlefingering, Littlefinger, et cetera, et cetera, and becoming a major player in the Game of Thrones. But I also am really into that being on stage action. Uh, I have to just take it at face value that all of that happened off screen because writers felt too lazy to actually build that in. And let me just fill in the blanks. Okay. Okay. Um, flesh that out. Cause that's a really, really good point. Yeah. And this is another major complaint that I have about, uh, about later seasons. Uh, I don't think it's a bad thing to include some offstage action so that you can pull a little bait and switch on your audience. I like to be surprised and game of Thrones has been having a difficult time surprising us lately because they're starting to conform to fantasy tropes that they used to really subvert. But the bait and switches have been absurd in the last, especially in the finale. Um, you know, we saw over and over and over again that scenes would end before they ended. And then we would get the next scene where we would get a little surprise. Oh, you didn't realize that this was happening in between scenes or all season, there's been this whole other plot happening that you weren't watching because we didn't want to write it just so we could sh throw a little shock at you in the finale. And that drives me crazy. Like, if you're too lazy to write that into the show, don't put it in the show. And to be fair to the Game of Thrones writers, that's something that's always happened. But it's always happened strategically. Strategically, yeah. With a, a, with, for a careful observer with a bit of foreshadow. Yeah. So, like, for example, season one, Peter Baelish tells Ned Stark, don't trust me. At the end of the season one, Ned Stark puts all of his trust in Littlefinger. And what does Littlefinger say? I told you, don't I told trust you me. Not to trust me. You know, like, so if, when you go back and you relook, like, of course, you know, Peter Baelish told him he wasn't going to uh, be honest and truthful with him. Right? right. You know, and so and so there's always some element of, yeah, there's some machinations happening behind the scenes. Yeah. It's been part of it. But the entire Sansa, Arya, Littlefinger right. dynamic had to have happened off screen because all we saw on screen was was Arya in a room threatening Sansa's life twice. Right. And what what drives me crazy is that you made me watch episode after episode of like weird contrived forced sibling rivalry instead of showing me the more interesting stuff that you're expecting to surprise me with later. Like clearly if we had seen a scene of, you know, what was happening behind the scenes, I'm doing a lot of that this episode, uh, just th saying the same word three times in a sentence. That's okay. It's been a long weekend. That stuff is clearly much more compelling and requires a lot more politic and a lot more like old school Game of Thrones dialogue and posturing, et cetera, et cetera, than what we were watching. Like I watched Sansa pull out some Halloween masks and be like, what are these? And Arya be like, I'm a murderer. Like it was like, 
That's oh, which is okay, fine, well and good. But the stuff I had to watch was was like unequivocally bad. And the stuff that you're expecting me to believe was happening off stage was probably better, right? Yeah. And when you have these scenes free from a conflict that gets to the root of a character, you know, so Arya taunts and, and threatens Sansa by virtue of her power because she can, because she feels Sansa has not been loyal, right? And reality, but besides from the whole illogic of that, because Sansa has done absurd. nothing but been loyal and has suffered equally, if not more, than Arya has, you know, because some of Arya's suffering has been self-imposed. She went to the House of Black and White, and yeah, they beat her mercilessly, but she still went there. And that stuff heals. The stuff that happened to Sansa does not heal. And instead of these characters taking time to talk to each other, we get rushed right to the root of the conflict of, you're a lady, I'm an assassin, that doesn't work. And we are left to assume at some point they reconciled these differences and hatched a plot to get to the real enemy, which was Littlefinger. And don't get me wrong, when Littlefinger died, that was immensely satisfying. It sure was. And it was acted beautifully by everyone in that scene. Um, even just like the soldiers that had to stand there stoically were fucking perfect. I almost miss him. Oh, I totally will miss him. Yeah. But, you know, he has to die. Yeah. You can't keep doing the shit that he does without eventually having everybody hate you, right? So, like... There's no way that he wasn't going to end up dead. And I do like that it was Sansa that got to engineer it. Yes, which I thought was a perfect piece of justice. You know, I just wish that they would go back to exploring the conflicts in characters and putting them in situations that exasperate that conflict, like Arya having to rely on the Hound for food, though Hound's on her list, right, of people she wants to kill. Right. Arya wanting the power of the faceless men, but having to give up her prime motivation, which is vengeance, to get it. Yeah. You know, putting these direct conflicts, both morally and philosophically, into the character and then watching them like in the situations that put those conflicts to head is one of the reasons why you can actually empathize with some of these terrible characters. Jamie Lannister, for example, when we learn that he didn't kill the Mad King because... He wanted to help his dad and Robert win the uh, the rebellion and help his house. He wanted to kill the Mad King because the Mad King was fucking mad and going to kill everybody. Killing people, yeah. You know, and we learned that like the thing that makes him just act like such a pompous, I don't give a shit asshole is the reputation of a Kingslayer, which was actually a noble act that he's capable of nobility and terribleness. Like when you have these conflicts in characters and put them in these scenarios where their conflicts are directly manifesting. It That's makes us what game of Thrones is all about. And it makes us love these characters yeah. and it makes us invested in where they're going. It makes us feel tragedy when their stories are cut short, it makes us feel elation when they finally overcome one of these barriers and get to, to, to take their rightful place. Like John being able to survive the battle of the bastards and become the king of the North was for me like, like one of the happiest moments of my year last yeah, it was year. Really overwhelming, you know, because we finally saw that the bastard got the place he finally needed to be, and he didn't even really want it, but it's where he needed to be. Yeah, and they took that that thing that made it great, and I think Arya is a shining example of why she was one of the worst characters of season seven. 
one of the worst to watch, one of the least interesting, the least compelling, and it came down to the lack of moral conflict interactions. Yeah. And us having to believe that conflict happened and resolved itself. I'm glad we're doing this episode uh, this week because I remember talking a lot about vengeance last week as uh, you know, a character motivation or a character arc. And my personal taste is such that I, I'm not that interested necessarily in vengeance plots most of the time, at least not traditional vengeance plots. Uh, when we get into things like Count of Monte Cristo and um, there's a lot of really good vengeance Shakespeare, like Hamlet, for example. But I think modern vengeance plots are kind of, uh, they kind of leave me cold because they feel very single-minded and feel very... Um, they feel very morally black and white in a way. Um, and that's one of the problems I had with Gangs of New York. But what was so interesting about Arya was that her vengeance plot, at least in season five and so on, uh, was, was so nuanced. And that conflict uh, you know, between herself and her um, and the thing that she wants and the thing that stands in between her and the thing that she wants is what she wants. Uh, I thought that was so fascinating and fabulous. And what we've done now is, is strip away that thing that made her vengeance plot one for the books, one for the ages. Right. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I would say one of the themes, the consistent themes of game of Thrones is that people, when push come to shove, will tend to choose vengeance over anything else. It's something that has happened time and time again. You know, I can think of Brienne of Tarth torn between waiting to see if Sansa lights a candle for help or being able to kill Stannis to avenge right, Renly. Yeah. What does she choose? She chooses vengeance. And she's not a bad character, right? Like, she's not an asshole. She's Brienne of Tarth. She's got... A, like a heart of nobility in her. Right. You know, and it's one of the themes that happens. Uh, we see it at the end of season seven where, you know, Cersei is confronted with their mutual assured destruction through the white walkers. And it's just like, yes, I could do something about that. Or I could hatch a plot to seek vengeance. What does she choose? She chooses to hatch a plot to seek vengeance. We see that happening over and over again. And what I thought was so promising with Arya at the start of season seven was her being the one character push came to shove said, I'm not actually going to choose vengeance. I'm going to go home. Right. And that to me was so interesting where they were going with that and was one of those subtle and nuanced moments that only Game of Thrones can do, but to not back that up with anything. Right. And at the end of the day, what's so powerful about those choices that people make on that show or on any in any story are how deeply personal they are to the character. And if we've been led into the inner workings and the inner mind of the character, then it's deeply personal to us too. And what we lose this season in Arya is any deep personal connection to her. We don't feel that anything is personal to her anymore. Yeah, we're not led in. That's because she is a wedge for Sansa's growth and then a tool for Sansa to use to get vengeance on Littlefinger when they set up a theme of Arya finally maybe letting vengeance go. Right. And not not developing that at all, not even trying to, yeah. is a representation of a show that has lost, I think, that its core 
at least for me, the core thing that I liked about it. Now, I know a lot of people loved season seven and listeners, I'm not trying to get you to dislike it. If you loved it. No, not at all. Great. There's nothing wrong with it. But season seven of Game of Thrones failed Arya. And you you just, if you, and I hopefully have made that case objectively, that it failed that character. And if that's a character that you love, as it was for me, and a character you loved watching, there is a part of me that says, hey guys, you got one more season. I know you are some of the greatest storytellers out there because you've done some of the greatest stories. Please, please just don't fail us. And it's never going to be perfect, right? This show cannot have a perfect ending with all of the hype and expectations. Of course not. Right? It's going to be picked apart, dissected, and people are going to debate it. And honestly, I'm looking forward to those debates. This is part of that debate, but just don't fail the characters. Give them something that they're fighting for, that I want to see them fight for it. You got me liking Jamie Lannister and the Hound. Yeah. Like you've you can, done, you um, can bring us back from this. Yes. You've done amazing things. Game of Thrones. I'm saying like, you're listening to us. You're giving such a great pep talk. Uh, yeah. I'm saying this like Game of Thrones listeners or, or showrunners are like, let's listen to the midnight myth. Talk about our show. Right. Yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure they're not doing that, but and I, I have to say, you know, in the, the vein of your point here, they're, Honestly, I got to a point where Arya was being brought in for trial, uh, and I was like, good, great. I can't wait for this to be over, because I don't want to see her face anymore. Just knife her. I was just ready for her to be dead. And I'm hoping to the many-faced God that the writers kept her around for a really good reason. I would love to see Arya rise from the ashes and and be what we've always wanted her to be, because right now I don't care what happens to her. It's one thing that they have failed to do is the characters that have been given the choice to follow a higher, more spiritual calling and how to develop them post that choice. So, and you don't get too many characters that are allowed to break out of the game of Thrones. Right. Arya had the opportunity, yeah, but she could didn't. have broken the wheel for herself. Right. And so Danny says she wants to break the wheel, but she is as trapped in it as anyone. Sure. Right. Yeah. Like she's like, uh, She's like Barack Obama campaigning for hope and change in an era of just like severe division and divisiveness. Right. You know, like, um, and, and hopefully, um, then you have John who's just like, oh, I guess I have to do this cause I'm the hero. I don't really, I'm not given much other choice. Um, and then, but then you have brand given the opportunity to break out of the game of Thrones and having the knowledge of the universe at his tip. What does he do? But, gets himself deeper embedded in the Game of Thrones. Yeah. Uh, and watching porn. Yeah, they have no clue what to do with Bran as a character either. They failed him. Yeah. Terribly failed him. That's that's an episode for another podcast. We've talked about Bran before yeah. and how problematic his character is for the show. So I won't get down that rabbit hole. Um, but yeah, I, I'm hopeful. You know, season seven was really, really bad. It was weak, yeah for the things that I like Game of Thrones, if you like spectacle, if you are purely motivated to be entertained and you just want to see this bloody tale get to a speedy conclusion, I can see how season of seven was satisfying because it did all of those things. And this is not to disparage people who enjoyed it. Oh, no, no. I don't want to put anything down. I'm not trying to be all like snooty, like, no, fuck you. You shouldn't have enjoyed it. No, yeah. Like, I don't want to be the comic book guy from The Simpsons, 
Right. Actually, Game of Thrones season seven is critically considered one of the worst. You know, like, I'm not trying to be that. You sound exactly like him. Yeah, I actually did. I, that was pretty good. I didn't even rehearse that. Um, but yeah, if you enjoyed it, great. It just, the things that I watched it for weren't there. And it's not because of an, like, I have a, a differing opinion. They just weren't there. Yeah, it's not the show that was promised. Yeah, and, and so since they weren't no there... I think the you have the right to say, why aren't they there? What is missing? And for me, that made Arya was the example of what was missing. Lack of moral choice, lack of a conflict that seemed to resonate deep within the character, which I would say happened to pretty much all the characters Yeah. in season seven. Arya, I think, was just the most, in my view, egregious. Yeah. And um, hopefully it gets better. I hope so. Yeah. Because it's still my favorite show. Yeah. I mean, they wouldn't be podcasting about it if I didn't love it. Yeah, right. Like, you don't do this podcast because you're uh, not a fan. Yeah. So, for those of you that love Game of, Game of Thrones Season 7, you know, feel free. Hit me up on the Twitter, the Facebooks, whatever. Tell me why you loved it. I, I would love to hear from you and hear why. Um, and, you know, sway me. Sway me. You know, the best thing that someone that I talked to vis-a-vis digital technology said was like, but dude, it was so metal. My response yeah, totally to, was. to that friend was, yeah, you're right. It was really metal. And like, don't get me wrong. Ice Dragon taking down the wall was fucking great. Yeah, that was cool. But special effects are not why I like that show. Never were. No. And I, But I love special effects and I still love that. That was still awesome. You know, like that was still really cool, but that's not why I watched the show. Never was. If that's why you watch the show, great. That's not what I was always interested in. Yeah. And if you, uh, if you felt the same way that we do about season seven, you can join our support group. We meet literally every day. Every day, all day, being like, what happened to our favorite show? <laughs> well, I will say one amazing thing came out of uh, the sort of weakness of season seven for me. And that's that previously I had not been very interested in reading the books. It just seemed like too much of a bear for me to take on in my busy life. But I was like, you know, I'm really craving some old school, like George R. R. Martin dialogue and character development and like depth of, uh, depth of personal, you know, development. So I am reading those books, which is really exciting. Yeah. Once you get to book four, Hang tight. That's where most people get lost. Batten down the hatches. That, that's where you got to dig in. Half of book four, you're like, what am I reading? I'm sure I'll be fine. Second half gets better. I've read Ulysses. I'll you, make it. You were prepared for everything. Yeah. All right, we've got a really great game. Um, I'm ready to move to the game. Yeah, you want to play a game? This one might be a little bit of a longer game because it's, so. uh, we'll, we'll see. So here's the game. Feel free to play along. Do your thing, Laurel. Yeah. So every week here on the Midnight Myth podcast, when we you know get kind of heavy and start shitting on our favorite shows, we like to play a little game to lighten the mood. So uh, yeah, we would love for you to play along at home. If you have a response to any of these, please tweet us at the Midnight Myth on Twitter or visit us on uh, Facebook Midnight Myth Podcast or drop us a line on the website, which is www.midnightmyth.com. We would love to hear from you and what your answers are to this game. All right. All right. So here's the game. I came up with a list of four gentlemen of Game of Thrones. Laurel came up with a list of four ladies of Game of Thrones. We put their names into hats. We're each going to draw a name out of the hat. And we have to describe 
our first date with said character. Yeah, and I would say two or three sentences. Keep it keep it simple. Yeah, keep it simple. So we're going to have to pull it out, the name out of the hat, and describe our first date with them. You first? Me you want first? Me to go first? I'll go first. Okay, great. All right. Or do you want to go first? Uh, you got it. You already got a piece of paper out. Brienne of Tarth. Ooh, woo, woo. So my first date with Brienne of Tarth would be quite simple. I would go jousting with her. Would you go to medieval times? Oh, fuck yeah. I'd go to medieval times. And then afterwards, we would wield swords and I would let her kick my ass because she, let's be honest, she's going to kick my ass. That's great. I just pulled out, similar theme, Stannis Baratheon. I don't know that I would go on a date with Stannis Baratheon, but if he wooed me, I would take him to a bonfire. That's all. (laughs) Just hopefully there's no children at the bonfire. (laughs) (laughs) Because you never know. They might just... uh, Burn the, the children we would alive. roast marshmallows. What? Yeah. What? <laughs> and their daughters. Marshmallows and daughters. All right. So I've got old Nan. Damn. Um, <laughs> that's Wow. Hot. That is, that's cruel. You put old Nan in there. So yeah. my date with old Nan, I guess I would take her to play bingo. That sounds amazing. Me and bingo. And if she starts telling me old stories, I'd be like, oh, great. Let's listen to these old stories of bingo. Yeah. Yeah. You know what happens when you play bingo, uh, whenever somebody calls out like O69 or G69, um, all the old ladies and old men in the in the crowd go, happy, happy. Because, you know, when you reach age 69, you're happy, happy. Is that a thing? Yeah, they do it. I've been to bingo. Okay, moving on. Yeah. All right. I got Bran after becoming the Three-Eyed Raven. This is great. Uh, my parents live in Colorado, so I would take him to one of the weed dispensaries and he would show me where that great stuff he's got is. That's awesome. And we would get super high. You get super high and be like, I know everything. Yeah. All right. So I have Melisandra. Oh, boy. Hot. Um, yeah, I would take Melisandra. I would take her to Scandinavia and go to one of those bars made of pure ice. Nice. <laughs> be like, there's no fire anywhere. It's not even chemically possible. That's great. Would, That's what I would do. If, uh, if she took you home, would you let her cut you? Fuck no. Okay. I'm not going home in Melisandre. She's fucking dangerous. Okay. We'd have a few drinks. I'd laugh at her jokes and I'd be like, all right, I'll text you uh, when we want to hang out later. And I would ghost like shit Never. on that. No way am I going home with Melisandre. All right. I got Lord Eddard Stark. Oh, wow. I think Lord Eddard and I would go would go horseback riding, um, you know, just on a nice, uh, chilly summer day. And it would just be a really romantic date. We'd go up to the Godswood. He'd um, be sharpening ice, ready to assassinate a prisoner. Yeah, and yeah. we would just have, like, a really terse discussion. Yeah, about yeah, stoicism like really, Yeah, really honor. stoic and really, like, monosyllabic. It'd be great. Egret. Oh, so Egret. I would go camping with Egret. Yeah, would you go camping? Absolutely. Would you go rock climbing? Fuck yeah, I'd be like, Egret, yeah, you're a badass wildling. Let's go to the Poconos and hang out and climb some mountains. Go to the Poconos. I yeah, love I, it. Absolutely, I would totally go camping with Egret. Nice. Uh, I got Kyburn, and uh, Kyburn and I would go to the shooting range, and we would practice, uh, you know, just we'd do target practice just in case a dragon showed up. Nice. Nice. All right. Well, if you guys want to let us know who you would go on a date with and what you would do on that first date, or if you think of a better idea than what we had, 
Hit us up on the Twitter, Facebook, on the website. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you. And until next time, be kind. Worst episode ever. 